Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome back to New Books and Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Patterson, and today we're talking with John O'Brien about his new book, Keeping It Halal, The Everyday Lives of Muslim American Teenage Boys. Welcome to the show, John. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. Can you start us off by telling us about yourself? Sure. Uh, So I'm currently a professor of sociology at New York University in Abu Dhabi which is in the United Arab Emirates. Um, It's a university that was opened about six years ago, uh, and I really like teaching there. Uh, I went to UCLA for grad school, and that was my first job out of grad school is in uh, in Abu Dhabi, and I really like it. Um, So I specialize in ethnography, sociology of culture and religion, and I'm getting a little bit more into migration as well. Yeah, so this book really started uh, back in grad school. As most ethnographers know, these things take a while. And so I was fortunate to have a great professor, uh, Stefan Timmerman, who in our methods class urged us to go out and find a field site early on to start uh, practicing our method of ethnography. And so I had really been interested in issues of identity, religion, uh, particularly people who feel like they're kind of at the intersection of different cultures, uh, cultural systems. And so I had thought of going to this mosque. I should also mention my personal history, which is I'm actually a Muslim convert, um, and I converted to Islam in 2003, uh, a few years before starting grad school. So that experience, which happened through uh, meeting my wife, who's also Muslim, uh, had kind of gotten me more interested in American Muslim communities and how they're understood kind of both from the inside and the outside. And so when I entered grad school, I kind of had that in the back of my mind as something I could potentially study sociologically. Um, And so I kind of took on this field site of a mosque that I knew of through friends. Uh, There was a youth program at the mosque and my own personal experience, having worked with young people for many years before going to grad school, I think kind of drew me to this group of young people who are kind of funny, interesting, dynamic, and clearly kind of not struggling in a heavy sense, but kind of wrestling with these questions of how to be an American teenager, which has its own set of expectations, and be a good practicing Muslim, which is an expectation of their family and community and and themselves to a large extent. And so um, I kind of got to know them, and then the project kind of took off, and I spent about three and a half years um, weekly and, and sometimes more getting to know them and kind of recording their lives through field notes and then writing the book. Yeah, it's always fun to talk to ethnographers because the methods are so interesting. So I was hoping you could sort of talk more about your methods and then the access to this mosque that you used and the group of boys that you talked to. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, ethnography is always kind of a combination of we're trying to, of course, be as you know social scientific as we can, but it often has to do with personal networks and, and relationships and rapport. And so I think you often find that ethnographers, there's something that is inherently interesting to them about what they're studying and, and they're drawn to it. Uh, but at the same time, you want to be as kind of rigorous as you can with the methods. So, and I have this kind of challenge that many people have as kind of an insider outsider in that I, I was a Muslim um, so that kind of brought me into the group a little bit, but on the other hand, I was new to the community. And so there was some suspicion. There was actually, there used to be a running joke that I was like an FBI undercover person because I was one of the only white people <laughs> in the mosque and was like taking notes all the time. Um, and that was actually before there was a lot of more of this actual infiltration of, of mosques. So it was maybe a little bit funnier at the time, but, um, but anyway, so I, I really kind of built trust over time with these with these young people. Um, and they also – there's also speaks a lot to them that they were kind of welcoming of me, uh, opening open to me kind of spending time with them and, and really very warm and welcoming and inviting me to their, you know, getting together with their friends and with no other adults around and really opening up to me. And, and they knew I was doing this project. That's kind of the – one of the one rules I was – drilled into me in, in grad school is kind of no deception. So you have to really early on tell people you're doing a project, you know, here's what it's about, here's what's going to happen. Um, and I got the, the consent of their parents as well. Um, but I think a lot of ethnography is just spending a lot of time. So a lot of these issues that come up in the book that are quite private and personal, particularly the chapter about dating, which is quite kind of a wrought issue in, in some Muslim American communities, they really only started talking about that after really two years of spending time with them. So a lot of ethnography, I think that is the payoff is just in the spending time with people and really having them trust you and having them understand that you're not trying to kind of get them in trouble or expose them or anything like that. You start the book by sort of setting the stage and talking about how you see these young boys as well, what is referred to in sociology as unmarked groups or social groups that have become invisible to the public because they don't usually fit stereotypes. And you um, come up with this term that you say that the boys live culturally contested lives. So I was hoping you could sort of define what that means and then set the stage for the rest of the book. Sure. Yeah. Um, the unmarked thing I think is important. I just want to mention that because it's something that I'm actually working on a, a little essay about right now in the sense that I think a lot of ethnographers, when they're studying populations, they're not only dealing with kind of getting access and how they think about the groups they're studying, but there's a whole world out there that has its own assumptions of, of what they, they're going to find. And uh, with interestingly, with my group, one expectation that both I had and many publishers and colleagues and other people had was that there would be a lot more issue of harassment and discrimination against these young people happening. Now, that definitely is happening. And I should mention that my fieldwork was done before Donald Trump became president or even started running for office, uh, during which there's been a lot more kind of um, discourse, anti some discourse and of course legal action but but what i want to get across is that even facing discrimination even though that was part of their lives it really was not a major core of who they were and so although they were facing that it's important that even as we try to sympathize with groups like this we don't kind of stereotype them in another way which is that they're constantly suffering and facing harassment and kind of up constantly oppressed people because 
these kids live very full lives. And that's part of what I try to get across in the book. But one thing that they were facing, which you mentioned, um, is this issue of culturally contested lives. And I think this is a theme that many scholars of immigration and, and youth and different subcultures have talked about, but maybe um, I tried to bring it out really explicitly that there are groups of people who uh, so I should say that there's a thread through sociology in general, and Simmel talks about this, that in modern societies, we all kind of move through different worlds from school to home, from work to home, family to friendship groups. We may be parts of different associations, identities. And so we're always crossing these different communities, even in the course of a day or even an hour. Um, but I was interested in how people actually kind of manage those and taking it from an interactional standpoint, the way Goffman would look at it. How do you actually manage these kind of tensions? And another thing to mention is that this isn't like a clash of civilizations. It's not like everything about being Muslim clashes with everything about being American. In fact, most things don't. So for most of their daily lives, it's not like these kids were dealing with these intense differences of culture. But there were certain areas where these kind of tensions would gather. And that's kind of how I organized the books. Um, and so they, I think it's fair to say that they lead culturally contested lives in that more than other people, this is something they're preoccupied with and always kind of managing um, more than others. But this is really focused on a few key issues that I talk about in the chapters. So can you tell us more about the boys that you interact with? You give them this label, the legends, and can you tell us why you do that? Yeah, sure. So uh, so this is kind of, a, I'm really like the work of um, Jay McLeod and Paul Willis and other people who have studied kind of groups of friends. Um, Gary Allen Fine does this as well, kind of the friendship group as a unit. And I think um, in adolescence, for uh, as many of us can maybe remember, that's a very important part of your daily life is kind of your friendship group. Um, you're kind of making meanings with them. You're talking to them. You're kind of processing your day with them and often become more important during adolescence than, than your parents were previously. Um, and so I kind of, as I drew into this group of friends, I realized this is kind of who they're spending a lot of time with. Um, and uh, I gave them the name The Legends, which is actually kind of a pseudonym for a name that they gave themselves uh, for a kind of sometimes active hip-hop group that they had, which they weren't necessarily great or famous, <laughs> but they uh, but they did write songs and perform them <laughs> for their friends, for their community. Um, and so that's where the name came from. But one thing about them that often surprises people, another idea people have about uh, a mosque in the U.S., and this is true to some extent, is that uh, people often think that a mosque will be one ethnicity. So is it a Bangladeshi mosque? Is it an Egyptian mosque? Um, where this mosque was quite um, ethnically diverse. And in fact, it made an intention of being that way from its founding in the 1970s. So this is one of the oldest mosques um, in the area where I was studying. Um, and so one thing that happened with Muslim Americans historically is that when they were first here, uh, there often weren't many other Muslims around. And because Islam is such a diverse religion in terms of countries and ethnicity, you would often get together for Ramadan or worship with people who were of different backgrounds than you because you had to kind of find who was around. And so this mosque kind of came out of that period and maintained that kind of ethnic diversity. Ironically, as more Muslims come to the U.S., uh, in some ways, some mosques are actually getting more uh, segregated uh, by ethnicity. And that's something I'm working on a paper on right now, actually, is kind of the ethnic segregation of, of some of the Muslim community um, today. But but this group of friends really reflected the mosque itself. And so there were really two sets of brothers, uh, two who were Arab-American uh, from 
from Jordan, two who were uh, African immigrants uh, from Somalia, and then uh, two other boys who were South Asian background. So they were very uh, ethnically diverse in terms of nationality. But what really brought them together and how they knew each other was coming to the mosque um, from a young age and being enrolled in what they actually call Sunday school. An interesting thing about mosques in the U.S. that listeners may or may not know is that, uh, like many other congregations of people whose religion is not, uh, you know, from the U.S. in a long-term sense, they um, adapt kind of the calendar of the U.S. in some ways. So, for example, while the daily prayer, so the, the weekly prayers of Muslims are Fridays, that's often hard to do if you're working. Uh, in the Middle East, that would be a, a weekend day. So even though people often pray on Fridays, the big congregational day for many mosques in the U.S. is actually Sunday, which is kind of mirroring um, what churches would have. And in that, in the, and similarly, the mosque I was at also kind of took on some um, features of churches and having a youth group, having different groups that would meet. Often uh, mosques in the Middle East or other parts of the world wouldn't really have such a organized communal nature of kind of different clubs and organizations. That's a very, I think, American version of Islam. And the youth group that these kids were a part of and they really liked being a part of uh, was how I got to know them. And that was actually something that you see in different churches, you know, the youth group where they'll go skiing and, you know, they'll try to mix religion with fun things to kind of keep the kids coming and involved. And my role in the site, which is something my advisor always emphasizes with ethnography is you need to have a role. So you're not just showing up and kind of observing people in the corner, <laughs> but what are you actually doing to participate? And so I kind of volunteered to help out with the youth program and organize it a little bit. I made sure that my role was not too kind of super as a supervisor because I wanted to make sure that the youth would trust me and not if I became too much of an adult. And Goffman talks about this as you enter a site, if you ally yourself with the kind of people at the top of the hierarchy, uh, the people below won't really trust you, which makes sense. So I tried to kind of walk this line of helping out and organizing the events, but not really being seen as kind of an authority figure. And I think I pulled that off. Uh, okay. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about the book is that really early on, you drive home this idea that they're young people just like anybody else. Um, and where they're sort of um, dealing with issues that other kids might not be is between their religious views and being an American teen. So I was hoping you could sort of tell us more about how those two things interact in their lives. Yeah, definitely. So, um, and it's interesting what you say, because one of the interesting tensions of this whole project has been, you know, as sociologists, we're always supposed to find something distinctive and interesting and new. Um, on the other hand, what I'm kind of finding with these kids is that they're kind of like every, most other kids. So <laughs> it's a funny kind of, how do you, how do you walk this line of, of kind of presenting what you found? But, but it is true that, that they share things with a, a subgroup of kids in the U.S., which is that they have a kind of communal, in their case, religious identity that does come into conflict in some ways with what we could call mainstream American youth culture. Um, and so they share that, I think, with, you know, something like evangelical Christian youth, some kinds of immigrant youth, uh, some kinds of racial minority youth. Um, and for them, that intersects with uh, American youth culture in kind of certain moments that I call kind of cultural dilemmas or cultural tensions. And so one of those I mentioned is about dating, um, there's kind of a set of expectations of how to be a proper Muslim young person, which, by the way, is kind of an ideal. It's not that anyone kind of reaches that. I think often non-religious people assume that, you know, very religious people are actually often reaching all these goals, but they're really not. And actually, Mark Chaves, who is a great um, sociologist of religion at UNC, has a great piece about this, about how 
I think a mistake people make in studying religions assume that religious people actually meet all these criteria they're always talking about, when just like anyone else, they often fall short of it. But they do have these goals in mind, and they do have expectations that their community may hold them to, and that they try to reach. Um, and so for these young people, the expectations were pretty clear on what it meant to be a good Muslim. Um, that meant praying five times a day, going to the mosque, um, not engaging in premarital dating, and definitely not any kind of physical intimacy before marriage, um, and also not not drinking or, or taking drugs, and also not engaging in pop culture forms that uh, really refer to any of these issues. So not getting into movies and TV and music that had references to sex and drugs and alcohol and things like that. And in that way, they're not dissimilar from, as I said, other what we could call, quote unquote, conservative communities of religious young people or, or some immigrant groups Um but for them, they really didn't have anyone guiding them to say, well, here's how you kind of navigate this. And so uh, in other communities like evangelical Christianity, there's it's kind of um, there's been a, enough of a history in the U.S. that there's at least the adults in the community are there's even books like, you know, how to date as a Christian and different things like this. Whereas for these kids, they were kind of just figuring out on the fly. And so. I was lucky enough to be around as they were kind of trying to figure this out with one another, which is why the friendship group becomes so important because these are kind of your local experts for one another and kind of how to do this uh, and get through the day. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that you bring up music. I mean, you talked about how they have their own group, their music group, but they also go into a studio and work on their music. And that's a place of almost assimilation for them. And here in chapter two, you mentioned this um Cool piety, which I, I liked as, as sort of a way to categorize this. And they even changed some of the lyrics of the rap songs to fit their religious views. So I was hoping you could talk more about how music plays a part in their lives. Yeah, music is huge. And I think it's one of the things that sometimes as sociologists or social scientists, we kind of miss uh, the importance of it in, in everyday life. And there's a great book uh, by a sociologist, a British sociologist named Tia Denora called Music in Everyday Life. Um, and it's really about how if you really look at people's lives, music is often around. Uh, it has a big impact on people. And she talks about how even the way you decide to use music in different ways, people are actively involved in using music, maybe to motivate you to get out of bed, to go running, to relax. Um, she calls it a technology of the self. Um, and I think these kids for music for them was really about this question of cultural balance and, and identity. And so, um, and I think this is part of kind of the history of immigration in the U S as well as kind of coming in and bringing some of your own music and pop culture forms, but also kind of, being attracted to uh, the musical forms around you uh, in the U.S. And so for these kids, hip-hop was just kind of what it was all about. I mean, they were talking about it constantly. I mean, I couldn't avoid it as an issue if I tried, which I didn't want to actually because I am a fan of hip-hop and of music myself. Um, but they were very interested, like many young American people, in this kind of music. And so they would listen to it, talk about it, you know, make up their own lyrics. Uh, they had this group called The Legends. Um, but for them, the challenge was a lot of mainstream hip hop music, even that you'll hear on the radio, although it's slightly edited, is quite, uh, quote unquote, profane from a religious sense. And it's talking about sex, it's talking about alcohol, um, these kind of things. And so for them, the challenge was how to enjoy this music, which they really got a lot out of, while not kind of doing what they weren't supposed to do in terms of um, saying these kind of words or being drawn to these kind of behaviors. And in that way, music played an important role because what it allowed them to do is kind of 
demonstrate a coolness and an affiliation with this kind of um, pop culture form, but without actually engaging in the behaviors that the music talked about. So one thing about, I think, music and art that's powerful is that it can allow you to kind of feel like you're having the experience or projecting your affiliation with a kind of way of being without actually doing that. And so they would, like I have in the book, this example of there's a old rap song called lean like a cholo, which is about kind of being a, you know, Latino gangster and they change it to lean like a Muslim. And so by doing that, the kids in the mosque both see that they are familiar with the original song. So they kind of get that coolness but in changing the lyrics, they're kind of trying to make it more appropriate. And so the adults don't really know what's going on. So it's kind of a subtle way of signaling and affiliation with that kind of urban American coolness while not kind of getting in trouble at the same time. So in chapter three, you bring up a few experiences that I think provide, you know, sort of an illustration of this tension between their religion and being American youth. And the first one is the what is called an American prayer. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us about that experience and what that sort of meant for the boys. Yeah, so that was one of these moments. There are certain moments in ethnography, you know, you spend hours and hours and years and years and certain things happen where you say, wow, that's definitely probably going to go in the book because it was almost like it was given to you as a gift of the people are almost labeling the experience themselves. Um, and so we would hang out at the mosque often in the afternoon. Um, and there's two, there's five prayers a day. At, um, and uh, at the mosque, it's important because the prayer, everyone can see kind of who's praying. I mean, if you're a Muslim and you're supposed to pray five times a day, which many Muslims do, but a lot of Muslims don't, a lot of Muslims will do kind of some of them, but not all. Um, but you know, you kind of assume everyone's doing their prayers at home. But when you're all in the same place in the mosque, there's a lot more social pressure to kind of you know, visibly actually do the prayer. And especially as a young person, if your parents are around, you know, they're going to be kind of making sure you you do it. Um, And so one day we were at the mosque and the kids wanted to go out to actually a sports store to buy. They were trying to repair this basketball hoop that was broken at the mosque. I was going to take them out. Um, And then we realized that the the late afternoon prayer was about to start. Um, We weren't sure it was going to start or not. So we thought we had time to go and then come back. But right as we left, we ran into one of the kids' fathers who said, oh, yeah, it's actually time to pray. And so we turned around and went back in. And this one kid, um, I think it was Muhammad, was quite, you know, looked really bummed out that we had to pray instead of go to the the sports store. But so we went back in um, and we were going to start the prayer. And sometimes there's a little bit of confusion. There's not really – people know the term imam maybe, which is kind of a parallel to to priest, but – Imam doesn't mean actually an officially appointed person like a priest. It actually just means whoever is going to lead the prayer. So really anyone could lead a prayer once a group of people is gathered, and that person is called the imam uh, for for that prayer. Um, And so it was a little bit unclear at the time for that afternoon prayer who was going to lead. There was a group of adults in one part of the mosque, a group of of young people in another. And so we weren't sure if the prayer had started or not when we came in. So we just kind of started to, to pray and join what we thought was the prayer. But it turned out that the other people were actually not starting the prayer. So anyway, we finished. And then the, uh, the father of one of the boys came over and said, what are you doing? We haven't prayed yet. We're supposed to pray as a group. And the kid said, oh, we thought we had already started. These guys were saying, you know, Allah Akbar, God is great. We thought they were praying. And he said, no, it's not time yet. You're supposed to pray together. Why do you pray by yourself? This is an American prayer. And that really, that really phrase struck out at me like, what are we talking about here? And so later I kind of Another good thing to do in ethnography is kind of ask people after the fact how they, you know, kind of to understand what happened because I didn't really know what he was talking about. And so I asked the, the son of the, the, 
the, the man who had said American prayer, what does he mean? He said, oh, he's always saying that. He says, whenever we pray by ourselves, that's the American prayer. And so what this really brought to light, which was kind of a theme that ran through my experience with the kids, especially around rituals like prayer, um, fasting, reading the Quran, certain expectations of what a good Muslim should do. Um, and some of them are very communal, like prayer. It's better to pray in a group than on your own is something that's a kind of a, a, a value in, in many Muslim communities. So this idea that to do something more on your own and as an individual is a more American way of doing it um, was interesting that the father kind of saw that. And we see this actually if you read a lot of studies of immigrant youth um, – one of the criticisms that many parents will have uh, when their kids grow up in the U.S. and they came from another country is that their kids are becoming more individualistic. And this is a, a complaint that many um, immigrant parents have. And so then you kind of tap into there's a whole literature on American individualism. And this is part of American culture and an expectation of being an American. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone thinks that's a good thing. And in fact, there's a lot of criticisms of American culture as being too much like that. But it is true that for the young people I studied, they were kind of caught in this dilemma of having expectations of a communal life. And the most kind of clear example is when it's time to, and even I struggle with this, I think being a Muslim convert myself gave me a little bit of insight into this struggle is that there are five times a day you're supposed to pray at a certain time. And when it's time to pray, you're supposed to do it. Not when you feel like it, not when you're done with doing something else, not because you wanted to, not because it fits with your you know other identity, but because you just need to do it. And I think that idea of having to do something at a certain time because an external authority, in this case, you could say it's God or your family or community wants you to do it can very much pull against an idea of, well, I want to go hang out with my friends or do something else. Um, and I should mention just as a detail that you can often delay prayers. You know, It's not like you have to do it at the right moment, but at least at the mosque, when everyone's together, there's a real pressure to do that. And so it was, it was a helpful moment for me to see this tension that these kids really face because it's not just that they want to be more individualistic. It's also that they're expected to by their friends. So American youth, American culture, and it's something that we can miss, I think, as Americans, like the joke about the fish swimming through water that says, you know, what's water? Because we're in this culture, we don't all often see that a lot of what we do. It's also an expectation. If you do something that isn't individualistic, in some ways you can be criticized for that. So why do you have to go pray with your family? Why do you have to go do this stuff? And so their friends at school are expecting them to be more kind of, you know, do what they want when they want, but their community has this kind of set of rituals that relies on kind of communal action in a different way. Right. And, and something that I found really interesting in this chapter as well is that it's more than just the boys who have these experiences. There was even an, uh, an experience you share book where there's an older woman who's looking at um, the t-shirts and she doesn't really want it to say Muslim. And I thought that that was, you know, a really clear example of how people are aware of, of the, these sort of ideas that people, other people might have about them if a certain word is associated with them. Oh, completely. Yeah. That's something that a lot of people who study um, stereotyping, there's a lot of um, literature and kind of social psychology, Claude Steele and others who talk about people often know the stereotypes that are associated with their group, I think more than other people assume. And I think you're even seeing this in the current political climate with, um, say, you know, Midwestern Americans or, you know, Trump voters that people are tired of maybe being thought of in a certain way. And that anger comes out in certain politics. And uh, you're right. A lot of the Muslims that at the, at the mosque would kind of know how they assumed other people might have thought about them. 
and really wanted to try to avoid um, being seen that way. And so, and sometimes hiding it. So like you're saying, right, the woman who said they were selling these t-shirts and they, it's funny because I even have a t-shirt <laughs> from that. Uh, it's funny that says Muslim on it and I'm often hesitant to wear it. You know, I'm privileged in the sense that I don't look Muslim. Like I look like a kind of a American white person. And so I can even choose that. A lot of these people, you know, they're at least look like people of color, but they could often blend in in their high schools as being African-American. It's funny that the Arab kids would often be seen as Latino just because of their skin tone. And so people would often like try to speak Spanish to them. Um, but but I think the ability to not necessarily pass, but they, they, what I call in the book a, a low-key Islam, meaning – you know, you'll tell people you're Muslim, but you're not going to run right into the room and say it. Um, and so that woman is an example of that saying, well, I'm afraid I'm kind of predicting how people might, they might discriminate against me. They might think certain things about me. So let me try to kind of maybe at least minimize the chance of that by not at least wearing a shirt that says that. Now, of course, one real difference in this, and this is a, another paper I may work on with a colleague is women who wear the headscarf, of course, are the most kind of visibly Muslim uh, Americans. And so there's a real difference, I think, in in how they may experience discrimination than, for example, these these kids. And it was interesting that a lot of the young women in the mosque that I worked at did not actually cover their hair. Um, and, you know, different, different parts of Muslim communities have different thoughts about that. And there's a lot of internal debate about even is it required to cover at all. But I do think that... Um, Right. People think a lot about how they're going to be perceived. And if they can control that a little bit, um, they may try to to do it in a way that they're not uh, likely to be kind of labeled. So then in the book, you get to the how you got your title, your book, which is Keeping It Halal. And that's regarding dating as a Muslim. And so I was hoping you could tell us about the two types of romantic relationships you really saw developing among these boys. Sure. Yeah, this is a big um, issue in any kind of Muslim people that I talk to about the book, they always say, oh yeah, this is a major, <laughs> major issue because you've got a situation where, and again, this it's important to kind of normalize this in the sense that this is something that a lot of immigrant groups have gone through, a lot of other religious groups go through. It's certainly not unique to Muslims, but it takes on a, a certain kind of, the content of it is kind of a Muslim content in that there's a tension, but and of course, even non-religious people in general, many people with adolescents um, have to wrestle with when do they think dating is appropriate, what kind, and all this. But for these kids, it was very clear from the beginning of their kind of upbringing that they were not to have romantic relationships before marriage, or if they were, they were supposed to do it in a kind of Islamically appropriate way. So then the big question, of course, what is that? Um, and doing research and talking to other colleagues who study evangelical or conservative religious communities in the U S you see that those communities have gotten to a point where there's even more kind of official guidance on how to do this. So a colleague named Courtney Irby, who does great work on religious um, evangelical women, uh, there are books called like dating in the light of Christ, or there's a book called taking God on a date. And so there's a little bit of an infrastructure of, you know, educating people on how to go about this. The difference with this group is these kids are learning about dating at school. Of course, they're, you know, they're getting to adolescence, there's hormones, there's all that natural stuff, but there's not really guidance on how to do this properly uh, as a Muslim. And so 
during my time at the mosque, I could see the leadership of the mosque trying to kind of deal with this and, and come up with ways that to talk about it with the young people. The good thing about this mosque, and I talk about it in the conclusion of the book, is that I think they were very open to hearing the young people's talk about these challenges without kind of judging them. And I think that was crucial to the young people feeling comfortable about coming to the mosque and also the mosque being a place as when you read the history of immigration and read some of the work of Mary Waters and others, that churches and, and places of worship have often been crucial places where kind of a civil society arena where uh, new immigrants can kind of work out how to balance their home country culture with, uh, with U.S. culture. But part of that in this situation was the adults saying, okay, maybe we can, you know, you can have a girlfriend or boyfriend, but it has to be the intention of getting married. Um, it ha- you have that your parents have to know about it. And also um, you can't basically be alone with that person. So there's a lot of concern on the part of many Muslims, not all, but that any kind of physical intimacy before marriage is something that's highly religiously inappropriate and, uh, and shouldn't happen. And so at least in this mosque, they were discussing these issues. I think in many places, um, there's so much concern that it's even inappropriate to even talk about it, that the conversations wouldn't be happening. But anyway, um, it was still a challenge for the young people because they didn't quite know how to do it the right way. They clearly wanted to date. All their friends were doing this. Um, and it's something that interested them. And of course, they were attracted to other people. Um, but they also want to kind of be appropriate. So the, the two ways that you mentioned that they kind of developed um, organically, one is with the title of the book called Keeping It Halal, which this one boy, Yusuf, who he was kind of the most religious of the group of friends. In fact, they nicknamed him the Imam because he always said his prayers on time and it was funny. He was the kid who they would always say, if you get in trouble, always say that you were with Yusuf because he's, he's like, has a good reputation with people's parents. Um, but he basically uh, tried to do this model of dating when he talked about a young woman he met and they said, we're going to keep it halal. You know, we're not going to kiss or hug or anything like that. Um, and we're going to try to do this the right way. And so that kind of dating involves really, it's, it's almost a more informal version of what, evangelicals would call like a chastity pledge or something like this, where you say, you know, we're not going to have sex. We're not going to even kiss or anything, but we are going to, you know, kind of try this out and talk to our families about it. Now, in this case, they didn't talk to their families about it. So it wasn't totally appropriate even then. But what interested me is even as they were hiding it from parents, they still wanted to have a kind of religious legitimacy to it. They still wanted to feel okay about what they were doing because their Muslim identity matter to them. And I think that's an important point that I want to mention overall is that these kids, it's neither that religious identity mattered all the time and was everything to them, but it also isn't the fact that they were trying to escape. I think a lot of people who don't have a religious background or maybe a kind of cultural minority identity background assume that, oh, these kids must just want to get out of there and never look back. But I think what's missing from that is that these kids actually get a lot out of being part of this community of having this identity and really do feel close to this, this religion. Um, And I think that's something that sometimes people who are more secular, which tends to be most academics, to be honest, kind of assume that these kids just kind of want to escape. So they did want to find a way, Yusuf did want to find a way to kind of do both of these things. Um, But that turned out to be harder as I find in the book than the other way of dating. And so the other way was I call dating while Muslim, which is a little bit more, you're hiding it from parents 
um, you're spending more time with this, these partners. You are doing some kind of physical intimacy, not sex, but maybe kissing, hand-holding, things like this. But you're also – the important part I noticed about this is you would talk about it in very ambiguous ways. And and this kind of links in with a, a theme that a lot of sociologists are finding about modern life where there are these kind of cultural – dilemmas is the the importance of ambiguity. So whereas Yusuf and keeping it halal, they were very clear. They said it was keeping it halal. They made clear rules, no kissing, no hugging. Um, on the dating wall Muslim side, the boys who did that really didn't talk explicitly about what they were doing. In fact, they went out of their way to avoid making any specific rules. So they would never say, you know, no kissing, no that, you know, no that. Um, because they kind of didn't want to give any ammunition for anyone to hold them accountable in a way to what was or wasn't supposed to happen. And so I think of those two modes of dating, the one that actually I think was more quote unquote successful is the um, dating while Muslim because it kind of flew under the radar. It allowed them to not feel guilty. Um, and in the end, because they were often dating Muslim women, which is something that happened the more I was there, that they're, they're romantic partners would more often often be other Muslim young people who also understood this kind of dilemma. So in some ways, what they were finding in common with these young women wasn't just, you know, that they were Muslim, but that they also were dealing with these same kind of challenges of how to, how to date, how to do these things and also kind of be a good Muslim. And so, um, but I think the dating wall, sorry, the keeping it halal approach, which was trying to be more kind of officially Islamic, really was difficult because the kids felt very guilty if they did anything wrong that they felt like was kind of off the mark of being a good Muslim. They would, you know, be kind of racked with guilt and, and often those relationships didn't survive and just became more difficult. So I saw some of the kids who started with that kind of dating actually migrate over to the dating while Muslim approach by the end of my time at the, at the field site. And so that seemed like a more tenable way um, of kind of trying to fulfill the expectation of dating as a young person while also feeling like Islam was still involved. And so for some of these kids, one of my favorite stories in my field work is I actually accompanied these young people to the house of somebody who they were going to meet as a potential um, girlfriend of one of the boys and, and the person's parents were there. And so this young man, even though he wasn't telling his own parents about this, because of course it's also important to mention with groups like Muslims, I have to say over and over again, different Muslims are different than one another, which should be basic. But so some Muslim parents would be very strict on dating. Some would be more open, you know, it kind of varied, but so the young man, um, I think it was, uh, I think it I think it was Muhammad, actually, he, his parents, he, he didn't want to tell about what he was doing, but he did want to introduce himself to his potential girlfriend's parents. Now, they were kind of open to this if it was done appropriately. And so he really felt like he wanted to have that kind of legitimacy to the arrangement, even though, um, you know, he was kind of hiding it from his own parents and knew that it wasn't maybe totally appropriate. He did want to bring that kind of Islamic propriety to it to at least kind of meet the girlfriend's parents. And so even as they hit it, it was interesting to me that they did want to keep some kind of um, communal and religious kind of appropriateness as part of their dating. So then um, in chapter five, you talk about uh, what the, the chapter is called being Muslim in public, public. And so I was hoping you could talk more about the boys' experiences in the public um, as being Muslim American youth. Sure, yeah. And this is where I do get to the kind of discrimination and harassment piece which I think is really important. I don't want to 
I don't want to try to, you know, get across that. I don't think it's important because it is crucial, especially now. And, and things really have changed um, since uh, Donald Trump ran for office and then won. Uh, in talking to these boys, I'm still in touch with them. Since then, they often talk about how it, it does feel like a very different climate now. Uh, in particular, Yusuf, the boy I mentioned earlier, whose whose mother does wear hijab and cover, uh, would say that he became much more nervous about her walking to work um, by herself after kind of the Trump era began. So I think the climate is different. Um, but but when I was there, they definitely face uh, some discrimination, and harassment at school. Um, sometimes they're called terrorists. People would say, oh, it's Saddam Hussein, your uncle, and Osama bin Laden is your father. And especially, I think, and I think there's been studies on this, when things happen in the news. So when maybe ISIS is in the news or something comes up about terrorism uh, in a Muslim country or with a Muslim militant group, then those things kind of filter down into the school level and those kind of stereotypes will, will come back. But one of the most disturbing things is I heard that they would often tell stories where even teachers at the school were kind of joining in on this or definitely not trying to prevent it. So I think um, one major problem that I think I talked about in the end of the book is that Americans in public schools in particular and probably private schools learn very little about Islam or the Muslim world at all. And so I think it becomes much easier to have stereotypes and ideas based on things you hear in the media or from other people um, if you don't actually know the history of it. And so I think that was, uh, so then public schools where these kids went became really a, a place where a lot of kids, other kids would say, you know, call them names or try to fight with them or things like that. Um, the challenge that they faced was how to respond to this, especially because the mosque, um, which was very intent on presenting a very respectable and peaceful version of Islam to others, um, would often say, well, if someone calls you a terrorist, you need to try to become friends with them, don't get angry, explain that Islam is a peaceful religion, um, which the kids would try to do sometimes. But I think at other times it became frustrating because if, let's say, the same kid's bothering you day after day about being Muslim and that really makes you angry, it becomes tiring, I think, to just constantly kind of try to talk to them and convince them when maybe they don't really want to listen. So in this chapter, I talk about how one way they would actually kind of, in some ways, show their American high schoolness <laughs> was by kind of fighting back, either with words or with uh, with actually physical fighting. And so, you know, other sociologists have written about this, how often in certain schools, you know, fighting for boys is a way to kind of become part of a group or prove, you know, that you're part of uh, a certain masculinity. Um, Eli Anderson writes a lot about this with African-American young people. Um, but I think for them, it was also a way to kind of say, you know, I, I don't just want to accept this kind of harassment. Um, and I think it was, this really became the biggest tension actually in the mosque, you know, for the most part, I think I was, it was very positive model of the older generation of leaders of the mosque and the community really getting along with the young people, supporting them. I think the young people felt in general, they had the support of, of the older um, leaders of the mosque. But when it came to this issue, and I think it's still a very live, raw issue, actually, uh, especially now among Muslim Americans, is how to respond um, in day-to-day life and even in politically 
because people feel that they're caught in this dilemma where some of the most egregious discrimination and now even kind of legal action with the Muslim ban is coming towards your community. And yet when you try to respond with anger or with some kind of visible um, aggression, uh, even peaceful protest that looks kind of like you're upset, people will then, that could play into the stereotype of, oh, you're an angry Muslim person, you know, you're going to get violent and that kind of thing. So I think the kids kind of found themselves at the crossroads of that of that dilemma. Um, and I don't know if there's an easy solution to it, to be honest. I'm not sure what the answer is. Um, but I think for them, they were trying to, I mean, which is interesting for them is that, but actually fighting back did become kind of a way to get accepted. And so um, by standing up for yourself, even if it's just kind of verbally standing up for yourself, I think they did see that that did kind of win them some respect, at least in the high school context, more than just kind of passively taking this discrimination. Um, And at least I think they felt like they were doing something about it. So um, yeah, I think it's a really complicated issue, but I think, like I said, I think it's, it's ongoing and there really isn't a clear, um, Eric Love is a great sociologist who's written a book about this, how different Muslim organizations have different approaches to this. I think it's going to be an ongoing thing to watch in terms of kind of social movements um, in the contemporary U.S. So then I was hoping here you could sort of give us the big takeaways of your book and really drive home the points that you want us to take away here. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think one of the main main points that um, may be unsurprising to some people, especially Muslims, is that, you know, Muslim American young people are like other young people. Um, they're already American. Um, people think, oh, we have to kind of, and it's, it's incredible what's happening. I mean, Donald Trump just gave a speech, I think, yesterday where he said, you know, immigrants are challenging the culture of this country, um, which is just completely insane. But I think what's interesting about these young people, if you look at them, is that they're actually going through the same things as many other young people in the U.S. So they're already very American. And part of what what that's about, I think, being part of a multicultural country like the U.S., is that they are balancing these different um, requirements. And I think that's what most young people are doing, whether it's with your peer group at school and your family at home or your academic expectations and wanting to be part of other things in your life, whether it be music or sports or different parts of your identity. Even though it's about Islam, that doesn't mean it's particularly heavy or totally out of the reach of these, this kind of everyday experience. It's, it's just another version of what I call a cultural rubric, which people have to balance. And so seeing it as that, I think, helps us get a more grasp on how to understand it. I think there's a tendency to see there's something about Islam that people see it as something, there's something completely inherently different about it from anything else. And I think that comes from how we're taught about it and how we see it in the media. But if we can kind of take Islam as just another kind of way of being, another aspect of identity, we can understand um, how these kids are like, you know, most other kids and how Muslims are like pretty much everybody else, but still understand how to, you know, support these kind of negotiations. So I think for me, a key takeaway is that because these young people had a place to talk these things out um, with adults who are, who care about them, they really are successfully basically balancing these Islamic commitments and uh, being an American kids. And I think that's kind of a positive story of this book is that it's this is there's nothing impossible about being a muslim and being an american in fact it's already happening these kids are already doing it um and it takes a lot of kind of small everyday work on their part but it's certainly possible and already happening and i think it's more for people to kind of open up to that and see that you know 
we can kind of encourage this and cultivate it. And uh, it's just much like many other immigrant groups have come to the U.S. But unfortunately, we're at a time where things are politically threatening that. And that's, I think, what's really unfortunate. Because I think when people feel alienated and like they're not welcome and they don't have the room to work out their own identities themselves, that's when people actually do kind of become alienated and frustrated um, and, uh, yeah, and, and depressed, which is we don't want anyone to be like that. Great. Thank you. So today we've been talking with John O'Brien about his book, Kia Halal, The Everyday Lives of Muslim American Teenage Boys. So what are you working on now, John? Yeah, so now I'm kind of taking advantage of my location uh, in, in Abu Dhabi, which is in the, the, the Arabian Gulf, and looking at kind of a flip story of migration, which is kind of Westerners moving to that part of the world. So I've been doing uh, two years of ethnography at a a, a social club for British people who've moved to uh, the Arabian Gulf and also interviewing families and parents of people who are raising kids over there who are from the U.S., Canada, uh, and England. So it's kind of a Westerners living, I'm calling it West to East migrants. We have a lot of studies of people moving to the West and how they acculturate and assimilate, but we don't have a lot about people going the other direction, uh, especially kind of people who are middle class and privileged people. So how do they wrestle with the different uh, configurations of politics, of lifestyle, of even labor relations in these kind of societies. And so, uh, yeah, I'm excited about it. So thank you again for being with us today. Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. 